Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also joining you from Brussels. Today, we are returning to Kazakhstan for an update just about a year after a wave of anti-government protests spread across the country. In the first days of January of last year, 2022, a wave of protests gripped major cities throughout Kazakhstan, initially sparked by a rise in fuel prices, but soon turning political. The protests covered a range of demands, including the resignation of the country's ruling elites. The ensuing violence between police and protesters still unexplained, but thousands were arrested and certainly at least 200 were killed. As he sought to restore order, President Kasim Shumar Takayev called in the Russia-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, which in fact deployed some forces, although what they ended up doing was guarding the airport and then going home. Since then, things in Kazakhstan at least have seemed relatively calm. Tokayev has pushed through some political reforms. He's certainly taken steps, as he did during the protests, to distance himself from his predecessor, Nishultan Nazarbayev. And in November, he won a snap presidential election, albeit in the absence of any opposition candidates of note. According to my proposal, the presidential mandate has been limited to one seven-year term. It's a real breakthrough in developing democracy in Kazakhstan. At the same time, we will be firmly adhering to my formula of a strong president, authoritative parliament, accountable government. Beyond that political crisis, Kazakhstan, like all of the rest of us, has faced a variety of challenges navigating the fallout of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. Since September, thousands of Russians fleeing mobilization have arrived in Kazakhstan. A wave of inflation has hit the country, and the war has put relations with Moscow into a uh, very different place than they had been prior. Takayev has been distancing Kazakhstan from its longtime ally, the country that sent in those forces that guarded the airport in January, refusing to recognize Russia's annexation of territory in Ukraine that Russia has announced, and uh, has also made efforts to diversify foreign relations, particularly continuing to strengthen ties with China, uh, something that, of course, had been in train beforehand, but is perhaps now somewhat accelerated. To talk about all this, we're delighted to welcome back Nursait Nyazbekov, who is joining us from Almaty. As you might remember, Nursait appeared on War and Peace in January last year, right after the protest wave. He had some amazing footage he took of what was going on as he biked around uh, Almaty at night time. Nursait is an assistant professor of public administration 
at Kimep University and an expert on politics in Kazakhstan and Central Asia. He had previously been a lecturer at a number of Kazakhstan universities and holds a PhD in politics from Oxford University. Nursait, thank you so much for coming back on to War and Peace. Thank you very much, Olivia Lisa, for having me. So Nursait, uh, January shocked all of us. And since then, things have been fairly quiet. What has surprised you uh, over what's happened over the last year and what hasn't surprised you? Uh, thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, um, <clears throat> the first thing that comes to my mind when we're talking about the January events is the classification of what this actually was. No one has still up to now had uh, figured out a name for this event. People say January events, January massacre, January turmoil. Uh, all sorts of different names are used, but there is no one universal uh, name for what it was. Was it a revolution? If it was, let's call it a revolution. Was it a coup attempt? Let's call it a coup attempt. Was it a rebellion? What it was? Or was it a peaceful demonstration? Was it uh, an attempt at democratization? So uh, uh, neither the government nor the civic activists had yet figured out a name to call these January events. But, you know, most of uh, observers, uh, including the government uh, itself, they have somehow clinched to uh, calling this as bloody January. Okay, bloody January. So you can even, a hashtag was introduced, bloody January Kazakhstan, you know, 2022. That's um, the thing that uh, surprises me the most. And because of this ambiguity regarding what this actually was, uh, there are lots of speculations which are still underway. There are lots of conspiracy theories. Yet there is no academic you know, uh, empirical evidence, empirically um, tested theories regarding what this actually was, because there is no data. Because, uh, you know, it's like navigating in a dark room, trying to find an object that you don't know what it actually looks like. So um, we are we are located in this vacuum of the lack of information that would let the public give this, you know, uh, a proper uh, classification. Uh, this doesn't also let uh, legal, you know, human rights activists, civic activists to uh, file a lawsuit against the government or because there is, like I said, a lack of information. To, to what extent have the grievances that originally sparked that unrest? I mean, initially it was around the price of petrol, but calls soon came to be against the, the ruling elite. To what, to what extent have those grievances been addressed? And has the domestic mood changed significantly since bloody January? Well, um, recently, like two months ago, actually even, even more recently than there, the government of Kazakhstan had decided, had passed actually a resolution to uh, let the government, to let the state decide and regulate the fuel prices. Previously, it was, you know, regulated by supply and demand. So uh, this uh, was um, decided just, you know, before one year anniversary of the January events. So um, this is, if you wish, the government's response 
to a grievance that actually triggered the January upheaval. But of course, the January uh, upheaval was triggered by the fuel price, which is, you know, the, the most recent justification for people to, uh, to flock to streets. But there are long run, you know, causes of the January events, like corruption, um, government, uh, lack of accountability, lack of transparency, uh, violation of human rights, you know, uh, democratic deficits. So, uh, yeah, there are long-term and short-term causes of this. Now, answering your question, what has government done to address those? Um, soon after the January events, Tokayev said that we are now going to be building new Kazakhstan. He asked the public not to devaluate, you know, the very notion of the new Kazakhstan. So uh, to back it up, uh, Tokayev said that we're going to reform the police. We're going to f- reform the national security apparatus, the army, uh, which Tokayev blamed for uh, failing to prevent what actually happened. In fact, the National Security Committee, which was headed by Karim Masimov, a guy who is now being under investigation, is very, is to blame, you know, the National Security Committee is blamed for being the, the perpetrator, you know, the organization, the, the law enforcement body, which uh, facilitated the January upheaval. So in that sense, uh, the government and Tukayev himself personally tried to promise the public that we will never let this happen again. The government uh, will take measures to address both the short-run and the long-run causes of this upheaval, including not only the regulation of the fuel prices, but also liberalizing the political and the economic spaces in the country, and more importantly, chasing down all of the, you know, uh, ex-president's family members who are extremely corrupt and who the public views to be somehow related to what happened in the January events. Tokayev also promised to uh, reform the the constitution, which, and there was a referendum to introduce certain amendments. Uh, Tokayev also uh, promised to increase the government's um, social programs, increasing the salaries, the pensions, to liberalize uh, the country's uh, political party legislation, to change the electoral legislation. So, uh, as a package that is supposed, you know, to introduce uh, the so-called new Kazakhstan. So a big part of this is getting away from the former president, from the Zarbayev, right? And, uh, you know, what I recall, right, one of the protest slogans was, old man, get out, right? Uh, the reference, I think, was meant to be all the old men. But the way that the Tokayev government chose to interpret it is we'll get rid of one particular set of old men and one particular old man at the head of it. Do you think that has worked? Is that, uh, do people feel satisfied that this has gotten rid of uh, the right old men? This is what um, uh, political scientists normally call as decoupling, decoupling from the, from the ex-president. That's a good question. Um, has Tokayev completely decoupled himself from uh, Nazarbayev. Well, on one hand, right after the January uh, massacre, Tokayev, you know, even rhetorically, you know, started to sound more confident, more proactive, more independent. You know, his posture changed, his body language changed. He started to use very, you know, um, very rough language. We will punish 
all of the all elites associated with the previous regime, you know, I'm just quoting Tokai himself. And in order to back that, uh, he um, introduced these amendments to the constitution, which would deprive Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, the first president of Kazakhstan, of all the privileges. And uh, Kazakhstan is one of these uh, few authoritarian regimes which had the law on the first president. What this law did is they created special provisions for the first president. Like the first president could rule for life. The first president would be immune from legal prosecution for any crimes that he had committed during his lifetime. Well, um, this law on the first president was completely annulled. You know, just a few days ago, the parliament had decided, had unanimously voted on uh, depriving the president Nazarbayev, the first president, of any, you know, special uh, status, provisions, and, and, and all that. But has this actually worked, like, in real life, in practice? Um, this is quite an opinionated question. In my personal opinion, no. And Nazarbayev uh, is still there. I mean, if Tokayev was really, was genuinely, sincerely trying to decouple from Nazarbayev, he would have initiated lots of, you know, criminal charges against the first president. There are many crimes, which political crimes, like political assassinations, you know, prosecution of journalists, and there was this 2011 Zanozin massacre in the oil workers uh, when they were shot down by the police. So these very highly publicized cases would have been brought up. But none of these old crimes of the previous regime have been brought up, have been brought to justice. Because Nazarbayev is behind those crimes. So uh, this, if you wish, is a proof that Nazarbayev is still in the game. And in fact, I've been mentioning this many times in, in the previous articles and appearances. The, the reason why Nazarbayev is safe is because this was part of uh, Tokayev and Nazarbayev striking a deal. Nazarbayev essentially saying, okay, you do whatever you want, you can legitimize yourself, you can, uh, you know, uh, prosecute some of uh, my elites, you know, but don't touch my family. As a return, as a return for this favor, you know, you can deprive me of all of the privileges. But please, I would like to retain only one privilege, which is, you know, legal immunity. And this is the deal which they have made. This is how Nazarbayev is still in the game. His family is safe and sound. Their uh, investments and their assets are still there, right? And uh, Tukayev is doing his share um, with Nazarbayev still being there. How is that perceived in Kazakhstan, this deal? Well, um People are kind of, you know, they are uh, satisfied. They are happy to see Tokayev criticizing the Nazarbayev's clan. Tokayev uh, using very harsh language against not only Nazarbayev's clan, but also his family. Tokayev's um, authorization of uh, prosecuting and chasing down Nazarbayev's even, you know, uh, far relatives, you know, remote relatives, family members. So to people, it looks like, you know, Tokayev is, is doing what he promised to do. But, you know, um, very few people actually realize that Nazarbayev is still in the game. A lot of people believe that Nazarbayev has become a, just, you know, an ordinary pensioner. In fact, he didn't. And Nazarbayev appears, you know, from, from time to time. 
he appears to congratulate people with some Muslim, uh, you know, uh, festivals, uh, with the New Year celebrations to open up some, you know, uh, objects, you know, architectural, cultural buildings and uh, festivals. So apart from that, Nazarbayev is not appearing anymore on TV. All of the banners with his portrait were removed. So people um, perceive this as a sign that, you know, Nazarbayev has, has left the game. As President of Kazakhstan, I am absolutely committed to build a just Kazakhstan. So, you re- referred to Tokayev as a dictator. He did run a snap presidential election. Uh, he won it. Uh, not surprising anybody at all. Uh, he has put forward some constitutional reforms to limit presidential powers. What do you think? Do you think that he is taking real steps to democracy? If not, what would real steps towards democracy look like? Um, And, you know, you said people generally seem to be accepting of the sidelining of the Nazarbayev uh, clan. Do they accept these steps as uh, bringing them a more democratic system, or are they also uh, somewhat uh, suspicious? Um, Tokayev is definitely not a democratic, you know, leader in the in the sense that political science defines, you know, democracy. You can't really compare Tokayev to Václav Havel, let's say, right, of the Czech Republic in the 1980s. I would classify Tokayev as an enlightened authoritarian leader, enlightened, okay? Somewhat modernized. New Kazakhstan, new dictator, okay? So it's it's a much, let's say, more updated, refurbished, okay, version. Uh, dictator 2.0, <laughs> uh, if you wish. <laughs> because if uh, he was genuinely committed to becoming a true democratic leader, he would have indeed held a democratically free and fair elections. He would not have prosecuted and chased all of these, you know, human rights activists, civic activists who have been uh, criticizing the government for torturing the, the participants of the January protests, peaceful protests. He would have also uh, introduced some genuine uh, reforms in the political uh, party legislation, in the public gatherings legislation, but none of that None of that has materialized. He is still using the old, you know, uh, tried and tested practices. Take, for example, the public debates, the presidential candidates' debates. Okay, in in democratic countries, this this happens. But for the presidential candidates' debates, he did not show up. So there were five other candidates, and instead of him, there was the speaker of the parliament, I think, or some, you know, high-profile representative of the government. Why? Nazarbayev also never showed up for these presidential debates. And so uh, neither did Tokayev show up. If, however, he showed up during these presidential debates, this would have genuinely, you know, become unprecedented in the history of the Kazakhstani political system. You know, that the president is truly committed, you know, to be closer to the electoral process, right? And then on top of that, Tokayev's order to shoot without, you know, a warning the protesters, this is also something that democratic leaders would not do. 
So um, this is just, you know, a condensed opinion of how Tokayev is still not anything close to being a democratic leader. I'd like to turn now to talk about the war in Ukraine and how that's impacted Kazakhstan. First, be useful to get you to talk about the domestic fallout, domestic implications. Uh, obviously, Kazakhstan, like others in the the Russia's neighbourhood, has been incredibly impacted by the the war. Uh, in particular, Kazakhstan saw a wave of Russian refugees after the announcement of the partial mobilisation. How have these refugees been received? Um, what is the situation now? And what other impacts have there been uh, domestically? Speaking of the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we could uh, um, highlight at least three uh, effects. The first thing is there was a public fear that Kazakhstan could become the next target of Russia. That's the first one. Second effect is the economic impact. The sanctions against Russia, Western sanctions against Russia, have directly hit Kazakhstan as well, because the Kazakhstan and Russia are too well embedded into the regional economic space. And the last thing is what, Lisa, you mentioned, the mobilization and the effect of mobilization on the social grievances in Kazakhstan. So the immigration of Russian young men, people who are of legal age to serve in the army, right? This has also uh, uh, shocked the public, which was not prepared for that. People were scared, essentially, that this could, uh, and this indeed, has destabilized the market for the property. The rent prices have gone up. Uh, the labor market has not changed significantly, right? But uh, the renting prices have gone up. Also, there was a fear expressed by nationalists in Kazakhstan that, you know, uh, Russia could use this as a pretext in future to claim that, you know, Kazakhstan is mistreating these Russian citizens who are essentially running away from a war, right? So Russia is chasing them inside Russia, and Russia could use these people as a pretext to protect them, right, if they wanted to punish Kazakhstan for, for whatever it is doing or not doing. So uh, that was the fear. Another fear was that uh, these people will start to um, create certain insinuations and provocations about them being discriminated, humiliated, their interests being violated. So uh, this is what, you know, the the public reaction was. And it was very much uh, sensitive, especially during the fall, last fall, so September, October, November, because the first wave of immigration, which began in last winter, like February, right, and March, it wasn't that, uh, that big. Okay. Uh, a lot of Russians at that point uh, moved to, uh, to, to Turkey, to Caucasus. Kazakhstan wasn't the primary destination, but in September, Kazakhstan and Central Asia in general was the, you know, the primary destination. Today, I would say that the, the public reaction has somewhat softened. Initially, people were extremely suspicious of what's going to happen. Uh, local observers, political scientists, uh, activists were, you know, watching, were keeping a close eye on what about, what was about to happen. Even myself, back in September, I forecasted that this could lead to the tensions, potential inter-ethnic tensions, 
but you know uh, fortunately this did not materialize and the public in the big cities of Kazakhstan uh, showed their common sense their maturity right they didn't provoke these Russians to say nasty things about Kazakhstan in fact they demonstrated their hospitality they demonstrated their you know goodwill and so uh, a lot of Russians who uh, uh, decided to reside in Kazakhstan ultimately they're very thankful to Kazakhs. So the tensions which observers forecasted have uh, not materialized. And this is the good news. Nursaid, you mentioned that Kazakhstan saw the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine and thought about its own security and uh, this fear that it could be next. And uh, this really has seemingly changed how uh, the country is looking at its foreign policy. Uh, do you think this is going to last? And what do you think the implications are? How much space does Kazakhstan really have to push Russia away? Well, um, there was more space in the beginning of the 2000s. That's for sure. But with the rise of Putin, with the strengthening of the Putin's rule and the consolidation of power by Putin, this space for maneuvering has been shrinking. And today, with the invasion of Ukraine, this space has shrunk even further. But of course, Kazakhstan and Tukayev have to do what they have to in order to serve their national interests. So um, the Kazakhstan's multi-vectored foreign policy has been put to the most severe test, okay, as never before. Today, we have to balance, you know, between the usual suspects like the European Union, United States, uh, China. But on top of that, now there is another uh, big actor, which is Turkey. Right. And uh, Kazakhstan is seeing Turkey as a good alternative. Very often, you know, people discuss this uh, today. Who will Kazakhstan go to for help in the event of Russian, you know, uh, deterioration with, with Russia? The European Union? United States? Definitely not. U.S. is too far. U.S. has completely left the region. Uh, this was the case with Trump, and this is still the case with Biden. Um, the European Union has its own problems. And uh, last uh, summer and last fall, we had the visits of high-profile officials from Turkey, uh, from EU, and from China. What is this? Is this a coincidence? Why did all of them all of a sudden decided to to visit Kazakhstan. EU is interested in diversifying its energy. Um, Turkey is trying to push its agenda. Um, they're trying to push the pan-Turkism concept. Okay, they want to uh, like mega pan-Turkic association of states with Turkey being the leader. And China, they don't care much about, you know, politics. What they care most about is ensuring that they keep uh, receiving a Kazakh you know, oil and gas, that their infrastructure projects in Kazakhstan are safe, like the uh, One Belt and One Road initiative, the roads they built, you know, the assets they have, their investments. Remember, Kazakhstan is the number one recipient of the Chinese uh, foreign aid, you know, financial diplomacy. So uh, all of these countries have come to Kazakhstan, and this is a textbook example of the fact that Kazakhstan is important. You know, and the great chessboard argument introduced by uh, the old um, scholar Zygmunt-Brzezinski uh, is as contemporary as uh, as never before. So uh, Kazakhstan is indeed at the very crossroads. 
and uh, Tokayev uh, is having a really hard time. We are trying to sit, you know, on the wall and see who's going to win in, in Ukraine, who's going to get more credit, who's going to, you know, in whose favor will the balance tip, in the favor of the West, in the favor of Russia, you know, and Kazakhstan will act accordingly. But even if uh, Russia loses, you know, in the war, though I don't like to use such, you know, a dichotomy, uh, Kazakhstan will still be extremely dependent on Russia, irrespective of the outcome, irrespective, because uh, uh, Kazakhstan and Russia are too interconnected, not only in economic space, but also politically, you know, socially, culturally, okay, because Kazakhstan is the most classified of all the regional countries. So, uh, no miracles. It's all so incredibly complicated and has only become more so over the course of this last year. You know, I wish we had more time to dig through uh, because there's just so much here. Um, unfortunately, all we can do on this podcast is uh, whet your appetites uh, for more. But Nurse, I thank you so much uh, for coming back to War and Peace and talking about just how much has changed since the last time you were on. Thank you. Sure. Welcome. To read more from Nosite, check him out in The Diplomat, and it's called Nosite Nyazbakov on Kazakhstan's Tumultuous 2022. For more on crisis groups' work about Kazakhstan and Central Asia, you can check out our website. That's www.crisisgroup.org. And you can also follow Crisis Group uh, and us on social media. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elisa is at Elisa Jobson, and I'm at Olya Olaker. I'm also on Mastodon as at Olya Olaker. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwalb. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So we are looking forward to chatting with you again in another two weeks. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time.